Um, it's been a really long time. Sashi Buri. Yeah, since uh, the last Ninja Consultant podcast. And by all rights, you know, I should be brave and just call it quits when I'm going to quit. Instead, I've been in grad school. And Right. Well, never mind that. I mean, we haven't done this consistently for about three and a half years, I think. That's true. And initially, you were writing for A&M. Well, the first year that really got it messed it up was uh, 2009, because we were getting married and all the wedding stuff took up a lot of time. It did, but we kept recording after that. True. And then uh, when I started writing Shelf Life, instead of doing this, I was writing Shelf Life. Right. And because then, there was only enough time to work. To watch 24 watch hours of anime 24 hours of anime and then write about it and cry. Yeah. Because... And drink. And drink because of the amount of terrible anime. There's a lot. And just mediocre anime, really. And mediocre anime, which, if you watch enough of it, is terrible. There's I mean, for your life. Then I got into grad school at NYU's ITP program, which stands for Interactive Toilet Paper. No, it's Interactive... <laughs> trapeze it's Primates. Ter- intelligent Trapeze Primates, I prefer to say. No, it's uh, Interactive Technology. Interactive Telecommunications Program, but I'd like to say Interactive Technology because telecommunications is a very 70s word because it started in the 70s. Anyway, I've been doing a bunch of awesome stuff, like making fake Kickstarter videos, projection mapping onto a beholder-shaped pinata and finding out about a bunch of cool art, and basically doing everything except recording podcasts. Right. No need. I'm even taking summer classes because I only go to school part-time because I also work at the university. But anyway, we did see two anime movies this year that we've been meaning to podcast about since basically March. Was it was it this year? Yes. When, what, when March. March. It was March. March. Okay. Um, both of these movies played at the New York Children's New York Children's International Film Festival, which sometimes shows anime, often in a North American debut, and uh, that was the case for these films. But these films also showed at Otakon, uh, which we just went to. It was the 20th Otakon, which I didn't go to as press, and I missed the panel deadline, so I didn't give any panels. But we're, we're glad. We're, we're both glad that you didn't give any panels, both no. of us. We, we both are. I, shoot, I shot footage of the JoJo's posing school that I could then use as homework and I built a website to go with it. So, again, I was just doing homework for grad school at Otakon instead of, like, doing other work. Which meant we got to stand in the line as regular people for two and a half hours. Yeah, well, the registration line is what I was talking about. So that happened. And then someone on, I think, Otakon staff, like, messaged me on Facebook on the Ninja Consultant page and was like, are you guys going to do an Otakon report? Because I, re- I really liked your Otakon reports. And I'm like, no. Except we just did one. That was it. That was it. Suggers. <laughs> Our whole ah. review of the con. Otacons. There are 20 of them. The end. <laughs> but no, I did say that we, we've been thinking about doing this podcast for a while. And now we will because, you know, more people have seen these films. They've been in wide release. I don't know if they have DVD announcements or whatever. But we certainly feel less bad about spoilers. Because right, because there will be spoilers. Yeah, because you've had a chance to spoilers. see these films theatrically. Maybe we can talk about, like, the end of the movies by, like, the end of the show. And then people will not feel utterly spoiled i can't work under those circumstances i'm just going to do whatever i feel noah's a total diva but i'm the one who's editing this so snap okay so let's talk about these films and who directed these films and why they're important and all that stuff the director's previous films should we start with that sure so we're talking about uh wolf children which is directed by it's not in your brain. No, but you I love always, this director so much. I know, but I forget his name constantly. You want to kiss him? No, he's married. And so am I. <laughs> um, Mamoru Hosoda. Mamoru. Mamoru Hosoda, who is frequently a uh, guest at the New York Children's International Film Festival, and in freak, in fact, 
he was at this screening of Wolf Children that I saw and took questions from the children in the audience later. And Noah is very anti Q and A with Q and A in general. Yeah. Although I'd heard Q and A with kids is actually okay. It's Q and A with fans. Yeah. Like whenever fans have to, you know, the creator comes out or whatever, especially when it's it's Japanese, but not not limited to being Japanese because you know Japanese guests they only give very rote answers anyway. Fans always manage to embarrass themselves. No, no, that's the problem. Fans should be embarrassed, but instead I am embarrassed for them when they because the whole point is not for them to learn anything out of this experience. They're not actually they're trying to come up with a question to ask because what what the they are there for is the interaction with this famous person, with this person who they they like a lot or you know wish to feel closer to, and so the actual exchange is not what anyone is there for they're there for the experience of being able to speak to this person and that drives me up a wall because generally speaking like sure i'll have questions for guests but they're nothing it's never a question that they will ever answer in front of a, a, an audience is your question how to become a voice actor oh you took mine i know right no it's not it's 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 you know other questions about other things it's just you're not going to get an honest answer in front of uh, an audience, certainly not from a Japanese guest. What is your favorite film you've directed? You know, I'd have to say my most recent film, the one that I'm (laughs) hoping you will spend your money on right now. I mean, they're all good, but let's face it, go see my movie. What was it like to work with uh, director so-and-so in the past? You know, that guy, he's really, it's amazing. He's brilliant. I love all his work. (laughs) <laughs> and I can't imagine saying anything about him that isn't positive because everyone gets along really well and they're all really creative. And, you know, I think you should see the movie. How do you like voice actress so-and-so, the famous Seiyu pop star? She's great. You know, she's she's always so energetic and polite and she's just a joy to work with. I, like, I wake up every day excited to work with this Seiyu actress, actress who's famous. What's the, what's the future of anime? Well, you know, there's a lot of different uh, uh, projects going on out there. I think that anime is going to continue to be a very expressive medium. I hope that you all look forward to the next project that we do. And uh, uh, thank you for coming. <laughs> do you have a message for your fans? Yes. Uh, Please look you forward for to watching. it. Please look forward to it. Yay. <laughs> Congrats. You've been to every anime con Q&A ever. Like, we just saved you hundreds of dollars. You'd think that, but yet you always go to the Q&A. I don't always go. You always go. Whenever I run out, you stay. That's the thing. Like, and so, that means I have to sit in the so lobby and put it in my thumbs. So at Otakon, AWO, Anime World Order is always like... Nobody goes to the creator panels. Everyone just goes to the English voice actor panels. It's like, well, because the Japanese guests, like, they'll show you the trailer for their new shit, and it's shit that you want to see that hopefully you've not seen a trailer of on the internet already. But then they take a series of horrible questions, and you have to sit through, like, a boring Q&A, and it's, like, the boringest thing ever. Like, and if you've been to one, you've been to, like, a thousand of them, and they must never tell you anything real. So why would I go to the creator's panel except for, like, to get a look that one time at Hidekiano, and I think that's why everyone else is also there. Right, or they're there to ask a question, or try to ask a question so they can be like, well, I talked to Hidekiano this one time. Not worth it. Nerds. So anyway, so Mamoru Hosoda, his other films... No, 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 wait, wait, before what? you go back to that, you got to say, say what the kid's question was, you see. Because well, I will sense. go for, for Q&A with kids, because kids will ask off-the-wall questions, yeah. because they are really curious. 
and they don't know anything about the status of talking to these people. They only go up to ask questions that they're curious about. Right. Um, so, no, I'm not going to say that until we talk about the film. Oh, fine. Because it doesn't make sense. But I will say, I did stay for the Q&A while Noah left, because I'd heard from Umar Hosoda, this was not his first time visiting the New York Children's International Film Festival. He had showed up in New York for the Summer Wars premiere, and I left with Noah in part to go to another friend's birthday party. I believe, perhaps our friend who was translating the Spice and Wolf novels, but, um, like... The other New York anime press type people who were there all stayed for the Q&A and reported later that, like, it was amusing and wonderful and cute. That The children at the New York Children's International Film Festival asked very intelligent questions and Morohosuda tried, you know, sincerely to answer them. Or that the we were worried that, you know, maybe kids won't ask very good questions. But no, like, it seemed like very well-spoken children who asked pretty good questions. There weren't that many questions at the Wolf children. Like, a few adults asked questions... Um, and I only remember what one little girl asked, which we will get to later. So I've seen all, like, the other Memorial Hosoda films are Summer Wars, as Rufus was mentioned, and The Girl Who Leapt Through Time. And there's debate between us and Dave Riley of Fast Cry for the Gentleman. Maybe not you. I don't know what you, which one is your favorite. But I, I'm a big fan of Summer Wars, and I liked it a lot, and I'm willing to ignore, like, some weirdness with the hacking part of the story in favor of like, I like it as a, a pretty interesting, pretty interesting movie that I think we've talked about on this podcast before. I hope. Yeah, probably. It's likely, but, but I liked it a lot, and I liked it a little bit better than the girl who leapt through time. But I really, I still really love the girl who leapt through time. Also, I think it's a wonderful sort of story about time travel, but also involving like junior high, no high school. Yeah, romance. I, think, I think she's high school. It's a coming of age story too. But I think it, there's a little, I think there are parts at the end where it winds up being sadder than it needs to be. And ultimately that romance resolves in the default Japanese romance ending, which is I'll wait for you forever. Be patient. Yeah, I'll wait for you forever. Because that that's romantic as opposed to the reality of having to live with someone day in, day out for the rest of your life, which is horrifying. <laughs> So there is, now that I'm thinking about it, an important film in Summer Wars uh, that we can contrast with, that carries over to Wolf Children, and that is Summer Wars isn't really about what it's about. It's about, and Hosoda has written about this in interviews, when he first married his wife, he went to a huge family gathering and met a bunch of people that he realized now he's related to all of these people. They're part of his family. And one of the many... One of the scenes in Summer Wars, like, this kid, the plot, if you haven't seen it, this kid agrees to pretend to be this girl's boyfriend when she goes to this big family reunion in the summer because she thinks that her grandmother, who's, like, the matriarch of this large extended family, she's sure her grandmother will die soon because she's pretty old. And she wants to impress her grandmother by having a great boyfriend who uh, she knows will take care of her or something like that. It's whatever. It's this girl's thing. And the boy is just kind of a nerdy mathlete, and he winds up randomly solving this encryption thing that kind of, like, breaks the entire internet and causes serious problems for the, all of Japan and the world at that time. There's a scene when he's being introduced to the girl's large extended family. They're all these, you know, not wacky, but some, some wacky. Eccentric. Some, some normal. Like, I think every family is kind of filled with eccentricities, and if you don't think that that's true, you don't know them very well. I, don't, I think everyone probably has a bunch of weird relatives. Maybe. The weirdness just varies on a scale. Yeah. Like, it's a, it's a range. Sure. A spectrum of weirdos, of weird uncles and aunts. Hmm. Anyway, I think the film 
gets across this kind of feeling of a large, warm, extended family with some conflicts uh, in a way that, like, most Japanese people probably totally miss, that, like, that doesn't happen that often. And the boy protagonist in the film, he indeed is from this small, like, nuclear family where he barely sees his parents, they work too much, he's an only child. You don't know anything. He doesn't have this extended family. He says many times, like, wow, it's been so awesome hanging out with you guys in your giant passed down from Samurai Times castle that is kind of... It's not really in disrepair, but it's, you know, it's an old house. Yeah, well, they're, a, they're a, an aristocratic family going back, you know, a thousand years or whatever. Yeah, on their ancestral homeland. Although a bunch of the aunts and uncles in the family are, like, pretty working class kind of people, like firefighters. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if a firefighter in Japan is working class or not. Uh, well, I, I think that what's, what's important about the positions that they have is that they're all community-based. Okay. And that the the black sheep of the family in Summer Wars is the kid who went to go work for the Americans and earn a lot of money. Ah, uh, yeah. Uh, everyone else is very local to the family, and, and they all hold roles that are somewhat more traditional uh, as being sort of pillars of the community. Right. Right. So that comes into play in Wolf Children. So Wolf Children is about this woman, again, a protagonist who, like, her parents are dead. I think she's an orphan and she's going to college and she meets a guy and has this romance with him. And just, I think she winds up dropping out of college. I don't think she graduates. Well, she does, I think, get get pregnant. In college. Yeah. yeah. I think so. So she gets pregnant by this guy in college and then it winds up like he's some kind of werewolf. Well, what's important is, uh, and so it has been since March that we've seen these, and that's why I'm a little concerned that we're going to get things factually wrong. But uh, this loner who she she takes up with in college, he reveals to her that uh, he is, in fact, a wolf man. It's sort of different in the, the Western sense of a werewolf being unpredictable and destructive, and he seems to be just more in sort of a Shintoist tradition, a an animal totem where he can change back and forth from a wolf and has sort of wolf instincts in addition to his his human emotions. I think it's more like in Wolf's Reign, but I didn't watch all of Wolf's Reign. <laughs> I don't think it's anything like Wolf's no, Reign. No, in Wolf's Reign, there's a big deal where, like, Japanese wolves were extinct a long time ago. Sure, I sure. think they feel yes. really bad about it, and mm. it comes through clear, crystal clear in titles like Wolf's Reign and Wolf Children, where he's transforming into a Japanese wolf. He can control it. I think the people in Wolf Children can. Not, I think the people in Wolf's Reign could control it too. But there's like an environmental part of Wolf's Reign where they're trying to bring wolves back or something. There was crap. a Yowie Kazali part Something of Wolf's about the apocalypse. Let's, let's face sad it. Sad piano music. And these whatever. are not. These are not titles that I would see. But and there are a lot of anime fans compared. who love Wolf's Reign. Well, that's because their brains were boiling when it came on to uh, Cartoon Network. That requires a longer explanation that we don't have time for now. But I was bored to tears because I was over fourteen mm-hmm. while watching it. So it's this woman who's an orphan, and she meets this guy and has this romance, gets pregnant by him, drops out of school, has two children at home. Well, she does because she's afraid that uh, they're going to be, or at least the first one she's afraid is going to be a wolf. And that's fair. uh, She doesn't know if they're going to come out as puppies or humans or what. That's a fair concern. Yeah. But she is slowly distancing herself from civilization in this way. It's almost, it's kind of rapid. I guess she stays in the apartment for a while. Like, she eventually, like, but the important inciting incident of the film Mm -hmm. is more that the father of their little family goes and gets killed while hunting. Well, and that's... And that's like, and that's a moment that it's really important in the film 
where it's not really clear and it's something we debated afterwards. He's found dead. Like they. Yep. As a wolf. They lift his wolf body out of the sewer later. But the thing is, when he doesn't come back that night, like he's left like his wallet and a bunch of groceries on the doorstep. So Noah thinks... Along with, I believe, a note saying, don't look for me. Please, yeah, don't look for me. Please take after the children. That doesn't come up in, in the reviews that... Well, well in, the, in the, the justification that she has for it is that she believes that his hunting instinct and his, his providing instinct took over. And so he was, he was out as a wolf trying to, to catch prey that he could bring home to his family and I think that that's not really been questioned in, in reviewers' reviews. I think perhaps that's a rationalization. But I don't know exactly what's going on there. I think it's, it's clearly it's important, and in a larger sort of Japanese sense, uh, it's important that the, the father figure is, at first, he's an outsider and then a non-presence. I mean, this has been a problem, and, and it goes into... This, what Summer Wars is getting at as well. Japan has been a society on decline since their economic bubble burst. They have a very low uh, birth rate, so low that many communities, many communities, seriously, as I understand it at least, are simply preparing to die out where uh, there's no, no young people being born. And so these, these communities are as people sort of get older and die off, they're not looking at renewal. They're looking at, like, winding down. Right. It's a kind of, like, especially in very small rural towns, like, they're just sort of, like, the young people pack up and move to Tokyo or other major urban centers for jobs, but there aren't that many young people, and then no one wants to live in those places, so they just are abandoned. And, and Japan somehow is okay with that. Well, they're... Oh, they're more embracing of it than... As Americans, we only... You know, we live in a country that's only been around for a couple hundred years, and that's really just hard to imagine. Also, we live in the West, where we have a notion of not cyclical history, but linear history. That there's a beginning of times, and an end of times, and the apocalypse, and that's it. Whereas I think there's a lot of death and rebirth in Eastern culture where it's sort of like, yeah, the apocalypse happened and then, you know, there's another bubble or whatever. Like, right. Well, we also, I think, largely as Americans adhere to sort of a Whiggish reading of history, which is that things... Ish? Whiggish. Like the Whig party? Yes. Everyone knows what that means. Well, uh, so a reading that things are just going to get better and better and better that as time goes on, we become more enlightened and th that uh, we learn from our mistakes and there is sort of a teleological sense of history to where there is sort of an ultimate point of enlightenment towards which we are not like the Eastern sense of enlightenment, but the Western sense of enlightenment, meaning, meaning there, there is sort of an ideal point of civilization that we are slowly and... and uh, painfully grasping our way towards but it is you sort mean like of a, the singularity uh well no okay i don't mean like the singularity you said what so like the singularity no the singularity <laughs> is like a technological point of enlightenment where everything is the the robots can make themselves smarter and everything is happy for the rest of our existence and sounds pretty good well, yeah. Where do I sign up? Well, you're you're actually you're on board for it, whether you like it or not. Oh crap! So I don't like that kind of just religion. By, just by virtue of living at the time in which you live, if uh, you know the singularity occurs, there's not much you can do, uh, either to uh, aid it or to uh, 
prevent it from occurring. Anyway, you can't make her bite your way out of this no, one. No, you, you can't. You can't make her bite your way out of this one. Anyway, I think, so sort of getting back to you, the absentee Japanese father. And I get, this is a theme that will come up for both films. Yes, certainly. Where I think there's a generation, multiple generations of Japanese people who uh, grow up without their dads. And some of it is by choice and some of it is not. Where in the 80s and the 70s sort of economic boom times, I think a lot of Japanese fathers were so busy being salarymen with no time to spend with their children. I'm sure I've read it somewhere where there's this problem with Japanese kids and their dads in the 70s in particular, where you never see your father because he's working constantly. And the only reason you know he loves you is because he bought you an expensive toy robot that was advertised on. I barely even know who my dad is, but I know he loves me because he got me this robot. Right. And it's a pretty good metal Gundam toy. I don't know. It must have cost like $100 in the 70s, but whatever. That's not really fa- fatherhood? I'm just going to well, put it's out there. Well, perhaps... It's uh, and even in their economic uh, bust recently, we certainly have heard from one of our friends about like the kind of with jobs not being around, some Japanese fathers will do things like essentially become a weekend dad, where it's like you go to the city that your family is living in on the weekend, hang out with your wife and kid, and then during the week you go and live in Hobo Tent City somewhere in else where you have work, right. but it's several trying, hours trying away. Trying to scrape up uh, whatever labor you can find. But this is why I think it's, in Wolf Children, it's very telling that he is he is absent while trying to be a provider. I think that this is addressing that very directly. He tried and um, failed to provide for his family? That so many fathers have done since the the economic bubble uh, uh, burst. And you see this in a, a lot directly or, or indirectly uh, uh, comes up in narrative. I'm thinking right now of uh, Battle Royale where the kid's father ends up killing himself um, because he's not, he's not able to provide. Yeah. This is something that I think is very resonant in, in Japanese narrative. And I think it's – whereas in, in Summer Wars – the film is meant to encourage people to have large families. Yeah, and to, you know, have real romance. Like, I think the kid in the summer where starts off, I want to say kind of on the otaku fence. He mostly hangs out with his male friends. He doesn't right. really talk to girls. He's a math nerd. He's heading down a lonely road towards yeah. <laughs> being an otaku. Right. But then he meets this large family and this popular girl he hadn't really talked with, but they can eventually have some kind of romance because of this sort of intervention and his younger cousin, who is like the ultimate online fighter who helps them out. I mean, would be cousin in law uh, <laughs> is also a kid who was bullied a lot in school, but he took martial art training from a different uncle. Like his uncle helped him out. And now he's like, not just tough in real life, although kind of an outsider, but also tough in the online world. He's the King. Like Which, the, his character that, that's is true. King. But I think you mean that backwards because any otaku can be a badass online. Right. But, because his family... I thought he was good online at martial arts because his uncle helped him in real that's life. That's correct. Okay. That's correct. But uh, I'm making the point that any otaku can be a badass in whatever that... In right, Oz. The, in Oz. But b- because his community was there to support him, he, he is also a badass in, in real life. Right. Uh, this sets him apart from an otaku who is... Completely isolated. A neat because his family is there. And in fact, although I hadn't really considered it, you know, his, his computer station is set up kind of in the hallway. He doesn't, like, close himself off in a room unto himself. He's kind of, uh, he's got a little nook. 
Yeah, but it seems like it's unavoidable. Like, it, he can't really isolate himself from his Well, he can't family. really isolate himself, but I don't think he's really trying. No, I, mean, no, I think right. that he's, he is part of the family, and they accept that you know this is something that he does. It's not an enclosed area. It's, right. it's an open, accessible to, to the rest of the family. Yeah, they there are no keep-out signs or yeah. anything like that. Yeah. And that's much more pro-human message, I think. Well, yeah. I mean, Summer Wars, I think, is a very pro-human film, although... I'm reluctant. I, my own reading, like, I don't like those kinds of large families. I don't like tight-knit communities because I want to be able to do my own thing and not be beholden to, to other folks. So I, I tend to feel very uneasy in these kinds of, of stories where the, the answer is, you know, be a, a close-knit community, you know, right. be, be a... Be, be um, you know, rely on your family, and your family is really the most important thing in your life. Uh, it's human, but I'm not so sure it's, it would be so accepting of the loner, because the loner is a villain. The loner yeah. is the guy who causes all the problems. Well, part of it is that he's also a bastard child of that family. He was never that, ex- like, the grandmother accepted him. She adopted him, even That's though... That's true, but if I recall, they tried very hard... Yes, they did. ...to inculture him yeah, in their family. Yeah, but he just stayed angry. And he, he wouldn't do it. Yeah. Yeah. So in Wolf Children, Noah and I don't like it as much as other people, I mm. think. We're, we're together on that one. What is your favorite Hosoda film? Oh, no, the, the Girl Who Leapt Through Time. Summer Wars, I feel, is really unbalanced and structured in a very strange way. I'd probably, but I'd watch Summer Wars again more times than I would watch The Girl Who Left Through Time because well, I really love the first half of that film, but then I, it's too sad to watch the ending. I know you would, but I'm with others. The only problem is that in, in my head, the title, The Girl Who Leapt in Time, always becomes like The Girl Who Slept in Lime or The Girl Who Slipped in Slime. I have to put up with or, this all the time. Right. With, and not just film titles, like everything. That's it's just how my mind works. Anyway, a lot of people saw Wolf Children at Oticon, and what I heard, overheard people saying a lot was like, oh, that's my new favorite Hosoda film. And that's very disappointing. Well, I... I, I other people are probably not reading into this the same kind of dire messages that we are, I don't think. So to, to go back and, and the way this, this film winds up, you know, she has trouble with the kids because the kids keep turning into wolves and she's really worried that this is going to prevent them from having anything approaching a normal life. So she moves further out, further out into the country, into a very isolated rural community where she's not really well accepted, but she's left alone and her nearest neighbors are miles away. So no one can really hear the howling of the wolf children because she's she's so isolated right but there is somehow a community like they don't we don't really see we don't see them driving around a bunch uh, that's not true we they do. do drive a bit they do. it they, takes they it's a long by. it's a long commute so she becomes a me. subsistence farmer right essentially except she's terrible at it because she doesn't know what she's doing do you want to define subsistence farming for our younger listeners uh, if younger, there are do we have listeners? younger listeners everyone somehow. aged out i think our, all, all of the the listeners who were younger than us when when they started to listen i think they're they're now much older than we are yeah, even Eper's little brother is kind not really a, that little. This weird time dilation. Like, but we're actually the same age, but they've gotten, they're now in their 40s. I don't know how that happened. That's strange. We get younger uh, and younger, and they stay the same age. I've gone backwards. The, no, a subsistence farmer is different from 
a commercial farmer or a family farmer. So she's she's mostly she's trying to grow her all of her own crops, growing her own crops and to feed the family. To feed the family, and you might trade with your neighbors, but you're not looking to. You're not selling anything. Selling them in a market or something, right? You know, and that's extremely difficult to do in many environments. Indeed, especially when you are the only person. And you've never even had a garden? And your children aren't really old enough to do labor? Like, my parents had a garden growing up, and I, I'm from a very rural area, but we never grew enough in our garden that would keep our family all year round. Even though my mom canned things, we were still very heavily reliant on outside sources of produce. Right. But we it's- also, you know, my parents had, like, jobs, and or we helped out on my grandparents' farm. The level of farming you'd have to do to have a subsistence farm, especially in a temperate climate, is probably pretty difficult. Well, this is certainly so, and also extremely risky, because one one bad year can wipe you out. Yep. And we say this, but consider that if you go back not that long, really, 200 years, most everyone was a subsistence farmer. Like, most peasantry was subsistence farming. If you were lucky, the local gang of Mad Max uh, brigands... (laughs) Don't come steal and, your crops. Yeah, beat the crap out of you. That's why you, potatoes are such a big deal in Germany. Or no, the local army doesn't march through. Right. Eat, eat your farm out and fuck right. you over. for. Yeah. yeah, that's Europe a couple yep. hundred years ago only. But that's one of the parts that I hate the most about this film is the idealized, even though it's not complete subsistence farming because she does wind up relying on her neighbor's crops and trading between them. It's this idealization of living on a farm and farm work. And oh. I, it's a total lie. Like, right. they make it seem like, that's ideal, that's pure, that is blisters on your hands all the time. Right. honest work. And they do show her blistery hands mm. a lot, and at least that part is there. But I think, and sometimes it happens in New York City, or you hear a story about it, about someone who's like, oh my gosh, my Wall Street job or whatever is totally empty and devoid of you know, purpose, and I feel so isolated from nature, I'm going to buy a farm upstate and start farming and selling shit and do real honest labor. But I think if... Uh, and that works fine as long as the farmer comes along with the... With the farm. farm. Uh, we know we, someone we who may have known, this, We may have known someone who did that, who's, kind of... who was like, I'm going to start this organic farm. But for the most part, people who do that find out that it's terrible. Uh, not only is it not profitable? It's a huge loss of money and mm. you kind of wind up having to keep some other job. And so you wind up with a kind of class of, I had a friend's parents who did this, it was called hobby farming where you're not farming for a living or for a business, but you wanted to have a farm. And so you have these sheep and it's like your really intense hobby is taking care of your sheep and your farm or whatever, or right. your alpaca, I guess. And I think a lot of the, the alpaca lifestyle, the alpaca lifestyle there are a lot of commercials on uh, North American TV, if you are li- listening to this in England or something, where it tries to sell sell you on the idea of running an alpaca farm, that that would be a cool stay-at-home kind of job. And then you sell their wool, and uh, not their meat, I guess, just the wool. Maybe, I don't know. Whatever alpaca byproducts. Alpacas have been domesticated for over 6,000 years. At One Stop Alpaca Farm, formerly Spinning Wheel Alpacas, we have grown since starting the alpaca farming lifestyle in 2002. Why not consider alpaca ownership? The opportunity for supplemental income, farming lifestyle, and tax benefits have been intriguing people all over the world in alpaca ownership. 
don't have land, no worries. You still have the ability to own alpacas and have all the tax benefits of ownership by simply boarding alpacas on our farm for about $150 a month. The yearly cash crop in the alpacas is obtained by shearing the alpacas once a year, with the raw fibre selling as much as $35 a pound. Alpaca ownership is a wonderful lifestyle. When you purchase animals from One Stop Alpaca Farm, you purchase with confidence. The only people I've heard of actually doing this are couples who, like, one person still has a city job and just commutes a really long way to their fucking alpaca farm where, like, the kids and wife are taking care of the alpacas. And it's kind of, I think it's a, I think it's a sham. It I'm not going to say it's a, a lifestyle choice. It's not a pyramid scheme, but it is so a lifestyle choice. That, you have to sell other people on the alpaca lifestyle. That's not part of it. There's something very important here, though, because we have, we, meaning Americans, even though our economy is maybe not so hot, we Hottest have in the world. not experienced a slump for nearly so long as the Japanese. And I bring this up because prior to Abenomics, which is a, a sort of break from, or an attempted break, certainly, but the, the, the whole notion is to try and reverse the trend rather than sort of cope with it or accept it. And much of the rhetoric coming out of Japan... We certainly saw it when we were there. I certainly saw it when, when we were there. In addition to uh, you know, other, other sources, is that there is a sense that they are going to return to the agricultural sector. Now that commerce is not as, as solid as it's been, there has been, to a certain extent, a, a sort of back-to-farmland cultural shift. Even if it's not actually happening, it's something that's desired. They are, or like, well, I don't know if it's des- if they're desired, but this is this is something. It's something that the the government itself has has been sort of encouraging. Hmm. A long time ago, I guess I was out of college already, but I was reading up for you know D and D purposes, as you do on on, on Byzantium, the rise and fall. Because Byzantium is an empire that, uh, if, if you, assuming it's the eastern part of the Roman Empire, and after Rome fell, Byzantium went on for another thousand years or so, but it didn't go consistently. There were times when the power of the state was ebbing and there were powers when it was waning and waxing and and there's a lot of cyclical success and failure in the Byzantine Empire. And I happened to read a paper that was about the use of civil space, like, like city grounds. City lots. City lots. When the state was flush, it was all commercial real estate, like shops and trade was taking place in these city city sectors when the, the state was on the decline the first thing that would happen is that commercial space would get busted up to become farmland and and this was like the the author of this paper his thesis i guess you could say was that pretty much universally when you see commercial space return to agricultural space it's uh, going to be a bad time. That's something for, that, and this is something culture. that heavily affected Noah that he brings up a lot in, I want to say, everyday conversation about economics or whatever, but also that during the 2008 financial crisis and things like that, when things seemed really bad and w- banks were closing left and right and the world economy was in the toilet, Noah was like, it's fine. It's just fine until turning lots into farmland. Like, then, then we know we've hit the shit. But that's 
there are places in cities like Detroit where it's utterly empty lots that people right. turn and over. Right, and that is what they are preparing to do f- with large parts of Detroit, yeah. is turn it into arable land. And yes, for, for Detroit, I think the urban blight has been there for quite some time. Yeah, shrinking it. It's, that, it's that been shrinking be for a long time. The nail in the coffin yeah. is, is that it's, it's going to return to farmland. And, you know, these things happen. It is cyclical, and I, but you can, you can look also in this country, in America, you can look dur- during the Second World War, you know, people would have victory gardens yeah. because rationing was so tight yeah. and so much was going to the war effort that they were taking vacant lots. Right, and, and, and they such. call them victory gardens because it was supposed to be like, we're helping the war effort by right. feeding ourselves right. and, you and go not relying on rations. Further to the Depression, yeah. And you, you find the same sort of thing. Although, I don't know, was commercial space being turned into, like, arable land? I don't know, actually. But I guess that's... that's. I, I see that as not a desirable state of affairs. Well, no. And, and I, it's not something I fantasize about. It's like, that'd be awesome, because I've done farming and it's terrible. But I'm saying it's very much in keeping with this sort of theme in Japan right. of returning to simple farm life yeah that's the irritating part about like i mean i love Hayao miyazaki as much as the next anime fan but the part that's really frustrating about all of his films is his sort of like really extreme environmentalism i want to help the environment and stuff too but you know what i don't want is an apocalypse where the plants can take back over which is that is miyazaki's literally said in interviews in, in before his, his, i, I can't wait a 99 interview in the new york times yeah when miyazaki said my dream is Humans will be wiped out. Uh, humans are wiped out. And the and plants take back over. The plants take back the earth. I think we've discussed this on the show before. Probably. But I think I'd rather live in balance with the so plants. So bizarre. Well, balance, right. That's like, also you know, a weird concept. It it's is. It's not really uh, what we think it is typically. Probably not. In the environmental systems notion of balance. Right. But I mean, Miyazaki's uh, pushing that really far. But Miyazaki is one of the most humanist directors ever to have lived Okay. And yet he wants us to believe that he doesn't believe it. I don't know. <laughs> I don't I don't get it. There's, Maybe he... there's a lot going on there. So wolf children, they're out in this in this farmhouse. The kids are getting older. They go to school and there's a problem where they're not very well socialized because you know they're wolf children. I'm trying to remember their names here. I don't remember them, but there's it's a boy Yuki. and a girl. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The the girl gets in trouble. She ends up slashing the face of someone who is threatening to... Well, she... It's Yuki and Ame. She believes that this person is going to out her as being a wolf. Because he said she she, smells like an animal. Yeah, she loses control and she she hurts him, her. Yeah, he's the guy. Her brother is generally just being... He's been a crybaby since he was a kid. poorly. He's like bullied a bunch. And pushed around so much that he just stops going to school. Yeah. This should resonate maybe differently with the Japanese audience because there is, of course, uh, a sect of school refusers, which we don't really have. We have people getting homeschooled here, yeah, but we don't have like a cadre. Maybe we do now, but certainly <laughs> when I was growing up, we didn't really have a cadre of people who simply refused to attend. Mm. The boy re- refuses to go to school and instead spends his time running around the countryside. Uh, Specifically in the mountain, in the wild. On the uh, on the mountain on which they live. Befriended by some old fox. Who's like uh, the king of the forest, he Yeah, says. who starts to, who takes him under his tutelage and starts to show him sort of the way of the wild. So ultimately, the dude that uh, the girl scratched works very hard to get her back into school. 
gives you like sends homework to the house and and food and gifts and stuff. The sister she she does return to school and presumably goes on to have. She makes well- a very conscious choice at that point where she is just like. I'm just never going to turn into a wolf again. She's like, she chooses the human path. Right. Whereas the boy, after an incident where I guess he almost goes the way of his father, where he, he falls in the river, it's so exhilarating that from that point on, he just makes the decision to stay in the forest. He comes to terms with his mother. He, there's a, a storm, and she hasn't seen him in some time. Because I want to say that a major problem in Japanese child rearing is having your child run outdoors during a typhoon. does seem to happen all the it, time. A lot. Like one yeah. kid in every town. Like if no one else, if everyone is safe, there's got to be like... One person who's like, I got to go find my dog or whatever. Yeah, my Pokemon cards are going to get wet. (laughs) Right. And they run out and the whole town has to like save them during the typhoon. And that totally happens in this film. And it's such a cliche. Like, I'm so tired of that scene. And it happens in last year's film that was in New York International Children's Film Festival was A Letter to Momo or Letters to Momo. Yeah. Also had the child out during a typhoon scene. Yep. Oh, my God. So tired of that scene. Yeah. Japan, knock it off. We're tired of this. Yeah, we're also tired of manga disease, which is what we call it. Right, but when, that's, that's, that's not going anywhere. That's a different show. Manga, manga disease is such a staple. It's true, like, and it's pretty much the consumption. But right, just, it's, yeah. it's like TB. It's, it's pretty much the equivalent Someone's of Someone's sick and has to be in the hospital for who knows why. But they're so weak and pale and pretty. And, it, and uh, the other one is parents being killed in car accidents. Clearly the leading cause of death by far. For in, adults uh, in Japan. Anime and manga. Yeah. It's a car real accident. problem. Like, they should seriously look Banned into cars. that. cars. Never let your parents ride Which a car. Which is weird when you consider how many people take the train. Yeah, like, I know. It's like hardly... Matter. The car ownership is relatively low. Anyway, he runs out during the typhoon right, and so blah, blah, blah. He, his mother runs out to find him and she ends up... She uh, trips in a ravine and right, almost freaking dies. he has to save her and they come to terms and she's like... Yeah, he's going to go and live in the, live in the forest. forest, and that's cool, and whatever. And I'm All cool right. with that. The girl goes away to boarding school, so it seems almost like they grow up even though they're only in, like, junior high or something. Right. I think there is a point where they, there might be a line where they say something like, well, wolves are fully grown in age, whatever. Human children aren't fully grown until... Yeah, just like uh, Jake Jake the dog. Jake the dog, yeah, on Adventure Time. And Lady Rainicorn. His kids are, like, 30, and it only takes a few years. Yeah, they're actually... They really are aging older than he is. Yeah, because they're different species they're, yeah they're kirin mother similar yeah but uh, the whole time all i could see was the same kind of declinist narrative that has been coming out of japan for a while the father couldn't be a provider and was worthless ultimately you know he goes out and dies oh he also i think there's a generation gap issue that i want to bring up in the other film as well that's mm-hmm. interesting where so with the absent father and there are no Immediate, there are no grandparents. This woman's, Hannah, I guess is the name of the mother, her parents are dead. Mm. We, she, His parents are also dead. He's like, I'm also an orphan. Right, but he's she, like the last of his kind. He's the last of his kind. So the advice she winds up getting is from the generation even older than that. People older than her own parents would be in that mm-hmm. instance. Mm-hmm. The old people who live in the town, who I, not really great grandparents of hers age, but like pretty old right because they, they're, they become they're still around surrogate parents to her they're still around and they're available and but they're like, grumpy and cantankerous right and but there's difficult. but the middle generation there is totally gone they're completely absent from this story and that's significant when we'll talk about poppy hill as well yeah, yeah. that there's a generation gap happening yeah so the father ultimately can't make any contribution to society and then the kid 
becomes a school refuser and basically chooses not to exist. You right. Know, he, he chooses to be a non-human. This is putting a very dire spin on men in the story. Yes. Uh, well, I, I think so. And except it, for it, the old man who helps out, who upset the farm the most. Like yeah. The gra- he's cantankerous. He's cantankerous old, and they keep referring to the fact that he's not going to be around for much longer. Right. Because he's so damn old. So Japanese men going extinct. And like, that, like the wolf. That is very much uh, in the Japanese cultural zeitgeist, or it was yeah. when, when this stuff was made. That's again, like in A Letter to Momo does not, also does not put a great spin on the men in the story where it's like about a girl whose father is dead. She has to live with her mother in the countryside and they're blah, 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 blah old people, right. nature, no, no dads, yep. no, ever, no dads. And that's, that's just the way it is. I feel like wolf children, 100%, I want to say, accepts the declinist narrative of Japan. Which, in contrast to Summer Wars, it's very odd because Summer Wars takes the opposite tact. Although, there again, you have a powerful matriarch. It's told from the perspective of a male protagonist who is a sort of a puzzle piece or goes on to fit in this family in a way that you can see he's going to have a future. Right. Uh, what happened between those two films? Mamora Hosoda had children. When they asked during the Q&A, like, what, you know, what's the, well, first of all, what's the inspiration of this film? His inspiration for Summer Wars was like meeting his wife's family. Like I said, when they started making wolf children or whatever, I think that's around the time that they his wife got pregnant or something. So it was kind of this tale of like what he hopes being a parent will be like. I don't know why that discludes him as a parent. His ultimate message of the film is more just like Hannah raised these kids pretty well. They chose their own paths and she's happy to see that they've grown into humans that didn't die along the way or that are reasonably all right. And what the little girl asked in the audience who had to have been about eight years old, she was like, why did you make such a sad film? And like, which is, I think from my perspective, at least exactly the right question to ask. Well, she didn't think it was sad because of the environmental stuff or the father being dead. She thought it was sad because at the end of the film, the mother is apart from her children. Right. Right. Or that's the way that Hosoda took the question and kind of spun it. Like, you might think as a kid right now that it would be sad to be parted from your parents in that way, but I think it's the hope of every parent to raise their child to go on to be like self-sufficient. He didn't say self-sufficient. Something along those lines that like that you raise your children well is the best reward of parenting. Not that it's sad, but you do want to see them grow up and leave the house. Yes, you want to see them grow up and leave the house, but then you might want to see them come back again. And they want to visit on Christmas? It, or it ends in such a way where she, she pretty much never sees her son again. And she's not going to see her daughter. I mean, it's a concrete. I think her daughter goes to boarding choice. school because they right. live in the middle of nowhere. Right, right. I understand. But there isn't but a local high school. She, well, I she wouldn't even be it's going to high school me. at that point. No, it's high she's school. too young. I think she goes to a boarding high school or middle school. I don't know. Whatever. Is there another time jump at the end that I uh, don't remember? All right. In any event, at the end of this film, the mother is alone, and it's true she's alone in this very loose community. It's a story about raising kids. This is a family that is not going to create the kind of family structure that Summer Wars is about. This right. is a family that is very independent and are going their separate ways and almost sort of can't <laughs> can't exist with one another. So I, I find them the two films pretty much diametrically opposed in their sort of contemplation of the family. And it's bizarre to me that he would make this narrative shift after having kids himself. 
Yeah, or during. I'm not really clear when sure. they were born or if there's only one. I don't know, whatever. I think that the reason why anime fans might like this film more than some of his other films is like, first, they're not picking up on all of the themes that we then or they enjoy those themes. Like, right. yes, let's go back to nature. There's mostly a lot of cute scenes of doing stuff with the kids and having fun growing up. Kind of, I think all the really fun moments where it's like lolzy stuff is always like ended in some tragic thing. Like, oh, the girl was being cute and turning a wolf and running around and pulling pranks. And it was fun games until the neighbor saw, saw her as a wolf wearing just a scarf or there's a wonderful long scene where they're running around on a snowy day and having fun in the snow. But that's the scene where Ame almost dies. Right. And it's like every moment of kind of joy like this kind of crush. I don't know if anime fans like that kind of crying thing. I don't know. I'm not into (laughs) that myself. (laughs) There are a lot of cute and pretty scenes. And if you like pretty things because they're pretty. I suppose. But because I just am fresh from Wikipedia trying to refresh my memory on this film. Something I didn't realize was that Wolf Children grossed $50 million in Japan, okay. which is huge for a non-Ghibli film. Uh, by contrast, Summer Wars grossed $17 million. Mm. So it clearly hits a note that Summer Wars did not. Who knows? Japanese film is a weird thing where it goes on, film prints go on tour in a way that like indie films in this country do, but there isn't the same kind of wide release pattern that we have in America, unless they're for American films in Japan. Because we create our own system. But who knows? Who knows? I don't know. And I don't know what audiences it played well with, but I'm not really... Whatever. Also, I think you can take younger children to see... Much younger children to see Wolf Children than you could to take them to see Summer Wars. Because the plot is kind of complicated. I'm not saying there's a lot of violence, but there's like more fighting in Summer Wars. Yeah. That's all I got. Hmm. I think it's the younger audiences that are appropriate for a film, the wider, the more people you can to see it. Because there aren't necessarily that many family pictures and when you have a picture that's appropriate for children to watch then people bring you know their kids their neighbors kids and that and take a that may very well be the reason that it did almost four times as well as summer wars could also be the economy because wolf children came out in mm-hmm. 2011 in japan as opposed to what summer was what 2008 2009 japan's economy has been crummy for yeah. nigh 25 yeah, years time. now yeah 2008 didn't help no and the earthquake Right. Yeah. Although I think Summer Wars, if anything, Summer Wars definitely came out before the earthquake. So now we're going to talk about Up on Poppy Hill, a very different, from Up on Poppy Hill, possibly, a very different film. So this was directed by Goro Miyazaki, but also co-written by Hayao Miyazaki. Goro, as we know, also directed... What? Earthsea. Earthsea. Legend of Earthsea. So that... Earthsea, I, don't, I think we talked about it on this show. Maybe, yeah, maybe not. probably. Um, well, I know we've discussed it a little. A little bit. 
not not a not a great movie, but you know, it's his first movie. It's not like he had when Hayao Miyazaki started directing films. Little Norse Prince is on Netflix now, by the way. Mm. You should watch that. Warhol's Prince of the Sun, as yeah, it's also known. It's also known like that. But um, Little Norse Prince wasn't directed by Miyazaki, but he was a key animator on it, and it was way pre Ghibli. But the difference between Goro and Hayao is. Hayao Miyazaki had lots and lots of years working in television, in in animation, in many capacities. So he was trained to be a director by the time he started directing. And he'd worked on feature films and stuff. Goro Miyazaki, totally, like, not estranged from his father, barely met his father growing up because he's working on films constantly. Some I read in one interview that, like, Hayao Miyazaki would come home, see the look at his children sleeping, and then go to sleep himself, and then wake up before they're up, and then go to work. Which sounds, you know, like an absentee Japanese father. And can easily be believed, given yeah. his oeuvre. Yeah. So, Goro Miyazaki is the director of the Ghibli Museum, which we've been to, and it's excellent. But you get the weird feeling, knowing that Goro is behind it, that, like, he made this whole museum dedicated to his father's work in this way, like, just trying to get to know the guy. Like, he doesn't know more about Miyazaki barely than the general public it's kind of sad or this kind of desperation like who is my dad really and like maybe i'm sure maybe he does know something we don't so they give him earth sea and i get the feeling like it wasn't his first choice to ever direct a film necessarily i the myth that i've created around it is that it was kind of shoveled onto him in this way like because japanese people really like that blood relationship and that your fa- if your father was the greatest ex of all time then you are probably also going to be the next greatest ex of all time just by virtue of blood, they expect that Goro is going to be a great director when he hasn't worked in television for a long time and had that kind of practice. So it's like, here, yeah, here's a film, and it's going to be mostly animated overseas. Ghibli's going to farm out the work to Korea, which is fine. Korean animators do a great job on most of the world's animation. Mm. But also, you're on your own on this one, and like, go. Of course it's not going to be... A great film and adapt a whole series of novels into one film somehow and do kind of a messed up job of it whatever you do better on your first film yeah. <laughs> let's see you try jerk all right says orson wells and <laughs> citizen kane but then it goes oh, down snap. i know right <laughs> and so i shall orson, orson wells father could could have been a film director but very short films i assume in the silent era the point of this story is only that it's night and day between Earth, Sea, and Up on Poppy Hill. Whatever Anon reviewer also kind of says that and addresses the Earth, Sea problem. But I think people are too hard on Earth, Sea. Like reviews I've reviewed, anime podcast take on it is generally like Earth, Sea. That was a shitty film. It wasn't shit. Come on. No, you know, you know, it was, know, it was really a shitty film. Lame. Yeah. Thirteenth no, Naruto movie. Oh my god, that the was one, a shitty film. The one where the only way we like got through it was by replacing the word chakra with chocolate. Yeah. Because there was a lot of dark chakra. Yeah. So it was a lot of dark chocolate. He could feel the dark chocolate flowing through his body. That was a stinker. Good God. And we, I've seen some bad Naruto movies. Even the first Naruto movies sucks. <laughs> pretty much all of them. <laughs> <laughs> so the Earth Sea was more interesting than any given Naruto film. Right. No joke. Hands down. Yeah. And what are the highest grossing? I mean, I don't know how highly grossing. I think the Conan movies probably, Detective Conan probably higher grosses than Naruto films. Probably. I don't know. Whatever. You know, it was another crappy film, the one of the bleak each movies dead, mm, i want to yeah. call it dead leaves that was not the name of it something leaves. no d- you, dead leaves another, dead leaves another I, I i liked dead leaves it was at least it's fun barely a film <laughs> it is barely a that's film. my review it's a lot of animation in it barely a film rock and rolling through there you're wrong i was never bored i was never bored there were no car chases <laughs> that's what <it's, laughs> that's what uh, aaron's father's review of james cameron's avatar was 
I didn't fall asleep and there were no car chases. Yep. Thumbs up. Whereas Noah was like, that is the single most infuriating movie I've ever seen in my life. No, no. Well, that's, no, that's not true. That, what did that you say? Cool World still gets that uh, <laughs> designation, the single most infuriating Well, infuriating movie. is different from... I know. I said that. it was the single most offensive science fiction film I've ever seen. That continues to be true. Anyway. So up anyway. Up Poppy. Up on Poppy. I love, love, love this movie. You did? I, I liked it a lot. Okay. I had a good time. I liked the themes in it. I think it was pretty rich. I certainly liked it better than uh, Wolf Children, but I also have a reading of the film that has not been reflected anywhere else. It's true. Makes me wonder if I'm crazy. And it was a really, it's a very discussion-y film, I, I think. But I think if you take the film on surface value, you're not going to have questions at the end. I had questions at the end. I think you're meant to have questions. And I don't think everyone does. I think a lot of people just took the the love story at face, at face value. value. They take sort of everything that's going on at face value. There is a level of depth there. And I think if you miss the depth of the love story, that's one thing. But how could you miss the level of depth about the renovation story? Like, For it's instance. so obviously symbolic. Okay, so up on, from Up on Papi Hill. It takes place in 1963 in Yokohama, Japan. This is a very exciting time in Japanese history, particularly in, especially in Yokohama. Things are being rebuilt. The economy is chugging along. Mm. And, like, things rebuilt. It's huge. It's explosive growth after the end of World War II, beyond the post-war recovery period. And if you read... Um, a drifting life. They kind of document the pre-recovery and then the part where Japan finally feels like it's, you know, it's over the war and it's getting better and it's going up. And there's that's a point before the 60s and it's like in the late 50s. Mm-hmm. There's a time when... Sazai-san. Sazai-san, also like some of the four panel comics about this, where there's a post-war period in Japan where everything's in the toilet, everyone's poor and starving, and American GIs are still handing out food rations and helping rebuild things. And when they're being occupied by the American army, they don't feel so hot about being japan everything's shit but by the time japan has recovered enough that the gis pack up and leave from that point on japan continues to grow with explosive growth for several decades just want to put in a little footnote here because i every time the american occupation of japan comes up i want to make sure that everybody knows (laughs) that uh the japanese were not very well treated and that there was an epidemic of rape from the gis that is fairly well documented, but not very well disseminated in America. Yeah, we don't really so talk about that in school. We don't school. talk about that, and yet we, we frequently, um, it, it is very important to make this note in what this movie is about, because it is about history, it is about talking about history, and it's about considering yourself through the lens of history. So we are very critical of Japan. Crap, that makes my grandfather's jokes about going to Japan at the end of World War II, and if we see any Japanese people who look like him... That makes those jokes really unfunny all of a sudden. Because he was in Japan right after uh, the bomb. Mm-hmm. And then hanging out with post-war occupying... Right. That's not cool. Well, no, the whole period wasn't cool. <laughs> uh, I mean, it's... I know. Anyway, but that, that's not a film. That's not a film about th- that period. That's a film... It's not a film about that period, and yet... It is. It is. And, we're, and we'll get to that. And so we'll this girl... So this girl, once again, we have a girl without her parents around, um, but her grandmother is, that is her grandmother, right? I believe so, yeah. She lives in a boarding house that her grandmother runs that I think her grandfather was a doctor and it used to be kind of this hospital thing or whatever. Mm -hmm. It was this very old house. A lot of things are destroyed in Japan that don't, there's not a lot in Japan that's still there that was there before World War II. And part of that is World War II, but then there are also other pre-World War II disasters like 
1925 or whatever, there was the earthquake that blew up most of Tokyo because these huge energy plants that were storing fuel exploded and burned down the city. Tokyo gets destroyed several times in the 20th century. And some of them are not America's fault. (laughs) (laughs) So this old house, the fact that she lives in this old house is very important important symbolically from the film. This film is also based on a shoujo manga from uh, years the early ago, 80s, from the 80s. Uh, which we've not read. No. And I would really, this that would be very I, helpful to me. I assumed watching the film that it was based on a novel because of the way that the story unfolds in kind of chapters, and it struck me as having a very more literary background. But if it, I would like, I would love to see that shoujo manga. Like, if it was drawn with the kind of detail of the film, it would be great, but I don't, okay, so... This girl lives in this house, and her mother is in med school in America or somewhere. She's gone. Mm -hmm. She's studying abroad, doing something. Her father died at sea during the war. During not World War II, but the the Korean Korean War. War. He died during the Korean War. She's a little bit younger than... She's in junior high or high school. High school. Uh, I think she's a freshman year. First year. Yeah. Yeah, so that puts her about 10th grade. She's 15. That sounds right. Okay. So she's 15 years old, and they live in this big house on this hill, and every day, like her father taught her, I want to say semaphore language. That's not quite it. He taught her some kind of flag signaling that they do in the Navy. So every morning she goes up and on this flagpole, she raises some flags that like pray for a safe return for ships. And a lot of that's because she misses her dead father. And they reveal later in the film, she always used to like when her, she and her mother and her father lived in a crappy apartment when she was really little, she would put up this tiny flag to pray for, for her father to come back and to wait for him to come back safely every time. Now that he's dead, she's not really doing that. Now that her mother's not there, she's in this bizarre position of, not bizarre, I don't know, she's in this position in the household where her grandmother runs the boarding house, but this girl is the girl who's waking up and making breakfast for everyone every morning, including the boarders. Right. As she's taken on the role of a traditional Japanese housewife, even though she's a young teenager. And that includes the responsibility of, and I don't think a lot of lay people... <laughs> Regular Americans watching the film would pick up on this. One of the responsibilities of a Japanese housewife is to run the house's finances. Right. So you, even though you're not earning any money, you take your husband's salary and you do all the budgeting for groceries and everything. And then you give your husband an allowance. And that's like a thing that Japanese housewives do. And so there's several scenes in this where she's showing the books, the accounting books to her grandmother that she's like, I did this with this budget, blah, blah, blah. I don't think she's giving herself any money, but she takes it really seriously and responsibly. And there's parts where the plot of the film, this boy in town who's in their local, she go, who goes to her school and is in the newspaper club, he sees her raising these flags every day because he's riding a tugboat to school and he writes a poem about them in the n- local newspaper, but he doesn't say, I mean, in the school newspaper, but it doesn't say that it's by him or it does, doesn't at first. I don't, re- these are details that I don't remember. All right. So her classmates read the paper and they're like, oh my gosh, there's some boy who likes you. He wrote this poem about, you know, you raising the flags in the paper. And then she's like, oh my God, a boy likes me or whatever. Or, or, or is it the case that they don't, no, they must know it's her. I think that's right. <laughs> Yeah, or he doesn't know who she, which one she is necessarily. Anyway, the point of the story is he pulls another stunt for the newspaper and she finds out that it was him, but then she's like, I don't know if I like you. Well, right, but why does he pull the stunt? Is it to get her attention? It's to, no, it's to save... To save the newspaper. Save the newspaper, not the, the newspaper. building. Right. So, at Japanese high schools, or more common in colleges... All of the club activities are run out of a separate kind of separate building that's like the club building with different rooms in it. 
And I get the feeling maybe high schools have a similar thing, but it might not be a separate building. But in this school, there's a really old pre-World War II building that they call the Latin Quarter that all the clubs have rooms in. And I get the feeling it's primarily like boys who are in the clubs. Well, clearly. In fact, I think it's boys to the exclusion of girls initially. It's an, Right. So are there girls in clubs in not, this school or there I are recall, no clubs? I mean, obviously, later there are. But if I recall, when they're in, initially going through... And it's, it's a great scene, and certainly my favorite part of the film is when you explore the, the inside of the Latin Quarter, where all of these clubs, it's, it's a society that's just boys, young boys. And so all of the clubs are dedicated to things that boys would be interested in, the astronomy club, the ancient <laughs> Egyptian archaeology oh, yeah. club. The archaeology club's great. There's a philosophy club with like one, one guy, really yeah. obnoxious guy in it. Yeah. In the hall, yeah. Um, but it's it's sort of a, uh, not exactly fairy tale world, but it's a world of the creation of a bunch of young boys. And they're all extremely passionate about their clubs. And you get that in the scene when they tour the clubhouse, like the newspaper club's dead serious about the newspaper. And the astronomy club is really serious about finding something in the sky. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like a joke that they're, they're not going to. But they're all they're all very passionate and very serious about this uh, about the clubhouse, and it comes into that there's a plan to tear the old clubhouse down in favor of building a new building that would be more modern and more appropriate, and that the old building is filthy and terrible, and it is like really filthy. But they love it so much that they are flipping out. And to be fair, it's pretty cool. It it is pretty awesome. Because there's a lot of custom stuff, like, you know, if you let generations of high school students, like, just build whatever in some inside of some creepy old house, like, this is what you'd come up with. Like, yeah. the ultimate sort of, not quite a college frat house, but I think the only similar weird structures I've been in are sort of, like, at the Michigan State University. Mm. It's not Michigan University. Michigan State University, the state college is in Lansing. And there's a co-op. There's college co-ops where instead of living in dorms, you can live in these collective, uh, collectivized buildings. Mm-hmm. And there's a national college co-op kind of thing. But you wind up with these really weird houses with lots of little bedrooms and like kitchens that are collectivized with like, you know, two fridges and they have one community meal where everyone in the house eats together once a week and it's different people's jobs to cook the meals. And like, it's a strange kind of hippie-ish whatever but like in those houses you end up with this super weird living space where like everyone's interests are splattered all over like a dorm but like other strange custom-built things are happening and Mm. the living room has multiple interest things going on or whatever but it seems fun in that kind of way like it's this space just for young people and right to show off their interest and be passionate about what they're passionate about. And there's also a really great scene that I liked a lot where the students have assembled to discuss the place being torn down or discuss something. They're arguing about That's it right. so like adamantly, like they love the Latin quarter. Like it is the awesomest thing ever. And they're in shouting matches about what's going to happen. And then a kid in the back gives the signal and everyone like takes their seats and stops fighting and starts singing the school theme song. And right then, that's when the vice principal or whatever the principal comes right. in to make sure that the meeting is going well. And it's this total front to be like, oh, we're, we're great students and uh, we love this school. And we're not, right. you know, we're all, we're, all, we're all together. They're putting forth right. this wonderful image that's like, of course, we're all, we're all in agreement. A united about this, front. Which is obviously totally fake. Right. But it's wonderful to see 
a film where the students love something so much at school. I guess being a total misanthrope in high school myself and not really, I, I didn't like my school most of the time. And I was passionate about stuff I was involved in, so I can identify with it on that level. But I can sort of, I can't even see people in my grade arguingly, arguing that passionately about much of anything. But I can see them arguing a lot. <laughs> so I've seen them argue. But we certainly would never be organized enough to put on a solid front in front of a vice principal because there's not that level of brotherhood solidarity solidarity mm. did not exist but it's like the passion that the students have in the film really like comes through yes. in in the art and in the acting and whatever there are some stereotypical anime things happening but they're so far in the background that like it doesn't really matter that much like there's a glasses character the meganico he's mm -hmm. kind of in charge of you know, the behind the scenes manipulating things like you would expect from an anime. But that's like, that's not what this is about. So I'm okay with like, okay, that guy was kind of stereotypical. Sure, sure. But I think even he has more of a depth of character at some point. Yeah. There's something about his character well, that's not he has. There's a line that I believe is his that is perhaps the most important thing because everyone is talking about how they don't want to lose the Latin Quarter because they love it, because it's theirs, because it's comfortable, because it's... And it's part of the history of their that's school. That's what he says. And that is the most... He says, if we lose it, we're going to lose touch with our history. Right. And that's really... That is ultimately the theme of this film. And I think you'd be blind to miss it, because most of the film is spent talking about the clubhouse, well, away from, except for the romance part, Well, th where they're like, the girls in the school decide to help out, where they're like... That we can convince them not to tear it down. All we have to do is clean. We're going to clean it and kind of remodel it and make it safe ourselves because they're saying, you know, it's an eyesore, it's a hazard, and it's unhealthy. Well, we can fix those things ourselves. We can, like, make it clean. We can renovate it so it's not dangerous. And we can make it, like, sanitize it with cleaning. Exactly. And they start to, and there are some awkward scenes of cleaning where, like, there are these mountains of old newspapers in the newspaper club room. They're telling everyone, we're emptying these shelves, throwing away unnecessary material. They're burning piles of old stuff so they can clean the shelves and paint them and whatever. But you get the feeling like even in this cleaning process, they are throwing away a lot of the history of the club room, but without totally destroying the clubhouse. Right. And that's vital for the message of this second half of the film. Well, what, right. What, I at mean, least which what, is happening what currently. I, what I argue, or what we, we, we which, seem to believe our reading, I which guess. Which we'll agree on. Where So this girl finds out, she has this photo, one photo of her father, and it's with two other naval officers. That's like pretty much the only photo of her dad. She finds out that this boy who likes her, who she now likes back, he has the same photo. So she starts to worry, oh crap what if this boy is actually my brother? Like, I like him in a romantic way. It's really not cool. And there's a, there are anime about this, like, Koikaze or whatever that we've never seen that's about, like, estranged sibling love stories. And there's other, you know, weirdness right, well, all the time I mean, in hentai. But, like, yes. the characters in this are, are really troubled by this might be the case. So she distances herself from the boy because of her feelings, and she's, they're unable to confront each other until later in the film. Although they do have a very blunt conversation on the subject. Yeah. Which is perhaps rare <laughs> for... Well, it's only a feature film. It's not an anime series. <laughs> right. So they don't have 26 episodes to hash this out. Where I, I think he says specifically, it's so... It's not Oni Guy Twins. We're... I think he, he says, you know, we're, we're in love with each other, but we're both afraid that we're, that we're, we're actually siblings. Yeah. Which is... That, that's on the nose. Like, yeah. 
that's exactly their problem. And I think a lot of anime fans may have walked away from this film only tied up in the love story, thinking like, oh, it's just, it's basically like Onigai Twins. Onigai Twins is a super cheesy series that, in so much as if there are guilty pleasures, like, that is one that I feel guilty about watching the whole thing, where it's only an 11 or 12 episode show about this guy who moves back to the house he grew up in, and he knows he has a sister, but he can't, he doesn't, he can't find her. I don't know if his parents are dead, probably. Um, Statistically likely. Yeah, right. They were probably killing a car accident. So two girls show up and start living with him at his house in almost like a harem anime type setting. It's not clear which one. One of them is his sister, and the other one's going to turn out to be his girlfriend. And you're waiting the whole series to find out, like, which one is his sister and which one is he going to fuck. Because, I mean, that's pretty crude of a way to put it. But it's like, you're kind of hoping as a viewer, like, oh, I hope it's that one and not that one. Or like, I hope the dumb one is his sister and so he can get the <laughs> smart chick. That's literally my line of thinking. Anyway, spoilers, it's a dumb one. I, did. <laughs> I didn't see it. No, no one wouldn't watch this garbage. <laughs> so this is like, so I love, I love him or her, but she's my, he's my sibling. That's like a, that is a shoujo standard yeah. plot line. Like that's Can't one Can't believe of, that my sister is also my girlfriend. <laughs> oh, <laughs> she knows I was referring to Ori Emo. How yeah. can my little sister be this cute? More like, how can my little sister be this hot? Which yeah. is disgusting. And right. I can't, we can't really get on board for that. <laughs> but there is a lot. Of, there are a lot of narratives in post-war Japan that are about. And this is very. I want to say I learned it at the history of shoujo manga fifties or sixties panel, where post World War II, you don't have telephones and infrastructure, and or in the same way that we even did in America at that time, where if your parents went to war, and they did because the government got everyone to do it, or you're a dissident or whatever, probably dead, like. So many people died. There were a lot of children who weren't sure if their parents were alive or dead and had a hard time getting back in touch with people. And there's a decade of sort of like, I'm an orphan, maybe. Maybe my parents are alive. I haven't heard from them. Maybe my relatives are dead. I don't know. There were a lot of manga in the 50s about children reuniting with their lost parents and stuff. And like that kind of narrative's not really survived because it's not really part of Japanese history in that way anymore. But certainly there's a generation of fathers who died in World War II. So that's like the current generation, their fathers are absent because they're at work all the time. Right. But there's a generation of children for whom they never met their dads because they died in World War II. Or if they didn't die, they were like, uh, what's his face? Who did Galaxy Express 999, where his dad was a ship captain who went around apologizing to other people's families in the community saying, I'm sorry, I couldn't save your husband. (laughs) That's a bummer of a life. I'm a retired naval officer who goes around apologizing for everyone who died. Well, and in fact, what he's doing is he's apologizing for surviving. Yeah. So at the end of the film, there's a kind of there's some shenanigans well, that happen. We, we have to, but, but before okay, so in terms talk about of the this themes. picture, what, okay. what we're talking about this photograph, right? So it's it's clear that they are not siblings by the same mother, right? Yeah. So what Half is siblings. not just implied, but but sort of explicit, is that maybe. Her father... Also, they're the same age, so it's really awkward. Like, did her father cheat on her right. mother? Did, was there an affair? Right. Did her father have some other woman? And if so, exactly what, what happened? Because they, they... I'm trying to remember all the details on, on how all of this is revealed, but they have the same last name yeah. in the book, the registry? Yeah. And the Japanese registry, family registry is very important in a way that we don't take it seriously that way in America, but... 
in Japan, in every town, there's a book that's your town registry. And the way that you know that you're related to people or whatever, mm -hmm. the, how you adopt someone in Japan is you add their name to your entry in the registry. And this comes up sometimes in Yaoi, where they can't marry. Right. The men can't marry, but the closest they can come is adopting that other guy on, on the registry. And then it's serious. That's and the way that you're actually related to people. These registries go back to the 7th or 8th century because it was the, the Buddhist temples where all of this stuff was recorded. And I don't know how many have you know survived, how many ledgers have survived the various wars and so on and so forth. But J Japan is one of the weird places in the world where when people try and collect demographic data, ages of birth or numbers of births and ages of death and stuff like that, they have this enormous wealth of continuous unbroken data because the temples were so serious about getting it all recorded for everyone in the community. Right. It was also used for taxation, which makes sense, but... This is more important and more reliable than your birth certificate would be in America. Right, or... And even more dire than, like, a marriage certificate. And like, we don't really have an equivalent In of the this. comparable time period in uh, Europe, people were sort of just testifying. Whenever there was a dispute or, or somebody dies, there would be, like, uh, a magistrate, whoever was responsible for that district or area, whatever they were called, would get people in the community to testify, oh, how old is this person? You know, who, who were they related to? I think you know, he was born stuff. the year the crops failed, so it uh, must have been 1248. Right, precisely. Yeah. Not reliable. No. And so you don't really know how old you are sometimes. So, and also not unbroken and continuous. Right, because different governments and different things right. step in. And anyway, so it turns out there may be some shenanigans with the photograph and the birth certificate and about whose child is whom. The boy confronts his parents and he's like, Hey, are you guys really... Does he know he was adopted? Is there something where... These details get a little foggy. Where he's like, whose kid am I really? Who are these naval officers in this photo? Right. And it's like, they adopted a friend of a... Some other parents died. It, it gets murky. It's not really clear. Right. And he, but he thinks it's pretty reliable evidence that they're not siblings. That he's the other guy, the other dude's kid. Right. But she's not really convinced. It gets kind of rushed. I'm not... I'm not clear as to what happens exactly when right. but one of the other men yeah in the photograph right the third guy is still alive right and he kind of shows up at the end oh no there's a there's a key scene where the girl's mother comes back right on a break and it's almost like for her mother to show up at that time and she asks asks her mother about the photograph but it's almost like the scene in shakespeare plays where like the duke shows up and solves everything he's like oh this guy is dressing as a chick and you're in love with so-and-so <laughs> And so I funded this play, and somehow I, I'm the hero. Like, right. I solved everything, and I had four lines. Like, it's almost right. <laughs> it's almost that level of ridiculousness where it's like her mother shows up and kind of solves, tries to clear things up, solves things in a way that seems convincing on the surface level, but like and to apparently most reviewers and apparently yeah, to most reviewers and apparently most anime fans, but I I don't buy it. Like the cautious her mother. Does not seem on the up and up somehow. Well, there's a scene... First, first that she's like an absentee mother. I think there's a scene where the girl has this dream. She has a dream that her mother is the one doing the cooking for her. Her father's alive and everything's fine. And she wakes up and it's like, oh, no, wait, my life is total crap. But you get the feeling <laughs> that like... You get the feeling that that's what she wants the most. That she just wanted kind of a regular family where like she wouldn't have to take on the burden of doing everything for everyone and being a housewife because her mother would still be there. But she doesn't live in that reality. And when her she does wake up and her mother is home and is cooking, I, there's something almost like insincere about it. 
her mother has not been there the whole film mm. and for her to just show up once doesn't seem very reliable and unexpectedly she doesn't she didn't know that that was the day her mother would come oh, in but it's still 1963 and what day people arrive you're by right. sea it's a very murky. it's an uncanny echo and that's not something that i really considered but you, you mentioning it now that's a, a good point because you're right she does prefigure it in the dream and so when it actually occurs it's that is unreliable because we've seen it before we've seen it as an illusion and so when it actually comes to pass the verifiability the reality of it we as as members of the audience are calling to question and i think there's something too about the way okay we saw it in march and it's a little murky but yeah. i think when the girl asked her mother about the men in the photograph her mother realizes like the seriousness of her daughter's question and she might think about what's going on and i think she bases her answer on what she thinks is going to make her daughter happier i don't believe her answer 100 percent, right. but i don't think she's necessarily lying completely or anything but she's trying to give the answer that will make her daughter the most happy right and because of the implied shenanigans what it would mean for this other child to actually be her husband's her dead husband's son this would mean that John was, Snow the bastard. Right. <laughs> oh, <laughs> Ned Stark's bastard. It's like he's beyond the wall and everyone knows <laughs> he's everyone Ned knows Stark's who he is. Oh, you're Ned Stark's bastard. Son of a bitch. God damn it. Why can't I go Thought someplace I where people schools. don't know who I am? Thought I could transfer schools and no one would know I was a bastard. <laughs> I specifically left that school because I didn't want people to know that I was Ned Stark's bastard. <laughs> and what do they say the first day? Oh, you're Ned Stark's bastard. What was oh, that a poster so somewhere? So frustrating. <laughs> Anyway, so it's quite possible that she may have convinced herself of the story, and she's not even totally convinced of it. I think they're waiting for that third guy when they finally hear from the third right. naval well, officer. That's, that's it. The guy happens to be in port. But only for a day, and that day happens to be the day that, like, so meanwhile, with the Latin Quarter and the renovations, the two kids have, I mean, three kids have been sent to, like, the guy who ultimately, I don't, does he own their school? No, he's a board member. He's a board member, he's a board but member. he's a really big he's shot. He's a very wealthy businessman. He's a big shot with a lot, of, a lot of meetings every day. They don't even have an appointment with him, but they wait it out to go and see him, where they're like, three junior high kids have shown up to see you. Do they have an appointment? No. They wait all day to see this guy, and they only finally see him for five minutes. They're like, you know, at least come to our school before you tear down the Latin Quarter. Take a look, because we love it. We've spent a lot of time renovating it. It means so much to us. And he realizes they've commuted so far. They've taken a day off from school to do this. It must be pretty important. He's impressed by the fact that they waited all day to see him. And he decided, he's like, yes, I will go and I will go to your school. I promise I will come and look at it. And he shows up like way late. He's like 10 hours late. Not 10 hours. He's hours late from yeah. going to a lot of meetings. At the exact same time that he's touring the Latin Quarter, that's, of course, like the eight hours they can meet this third ship captain in the photograph. So the two main players who renovated the clubhouse have to run out of school to go and see this guy in the harbor while the fate of the Latin Quarter is decided, which is pretty dramatic. Mm. It's like, a, that's life, and it's so annoying. <laughs> Where, like, <laughs> it's why everything happens to happen on a Tuesday. Right. The same day when I, I play D&D. Like, or why, why why does that have to be really there? exciting things only happen like there's only one day a year that Juan Carwai is in town and it's during Oticon or something like right, right. the one weekend a year I leave New York City like a bunch <laughs> of stuff happens Juan Carwai did not come to New York during Oticon but I thought that was the case and that would be typical for instance for instance yeah. but they just often things like that just seem to happen and the weightiness of that scene is not lost well, in me. Generally speaking, and in, in just in narrative in general, anything that makes life harder for a protagonist seems realistic. Anything that makes <laughs> it, is life easier 
seems as seems fantasy fake yeah uh, it's fantasy film where everything works out somehow and it's not difficult to do things right so they go to talk to this sea captain guy and i don't believe his answer well right so what he explains is exactly what uh, is adoption thing i mean i can read it from the wikipedia but i don't I don't know if that will clear up. That the other guy... Oh, man. Yeah, I, don't, I guess All right. probably should read It's gotten it. really convoluted at this point. Okay. And so it is. It's convoluted in the film. Umi and Shun are soon summoned to the harbor. They meet Yoshio Onodera, now a ship's captain, who is the third man in the photograph and the sole survivor of the three, confirming that Umi and Shun are not related by blood. Onodera tells the full story of the naval men in the previous era. With everything resolved, Umi returns to her house and starts raising the flags again. All right. And that's all well and good, except there is a scene where the mother is approaching this ship captain. Yeah. They're in a restaurant or something. Before the kids meet her? Yes. Before the kids meet him. Yes. yes. Before okay. the kids meet him. And it's not clear what goes down in that scene. Yeah. We don't get to see what they talk about. We don't what know they what they talk they about. Talk about? What, what, what's the purpose of that scene? Just so we see that she has made contact with this guy? And why are they acting so furtive in that scene? So I think what we are, are meant to believe, I think that this is an accurate reading of the film, is that she is telling him to lie. Yeah. She is telling him, here is what I want you to say, and here is why. And Japanese style, this is perfectly acceptable, because it allows everyone to save face, it smooths everything over, and... Just like, and realistically, you know, they are, they're high school students. It's, their romance may not maybe, last at all. Maybe won't last. It's just it's, sure. the more, it's the most important thing to them right now. And it's not, you know, whether down the road if they're going to have kids or inbred. Like, that's not even – that may never happen. It's not really that important. I think the adults are making a decision on behalf of the kids there. Whatever happened in the past is too painful or too scandalous and it shouldn't come to light. And I think the kids are willing to accept what the captain tells them, even if they don't necessarily believe it, that they'll make that that makes everyone happier, happier. And that's the truth that they're going to live with. And that is what this film is about. This film is about how it is necessary but uncomfortable to sanitize the past in a way that allows future generations to live. And that is a deep, heady, really gut wrenching story. And I don't think it's anyone about, yeah, it's seems about, to have picked no, up on No, people pick up on like, they're like, oh, it's kind of a romance that's kind of cheesy. And if you take it on surface value, it's really unsatisfying. And I... Where it's like just kind of cliche, but it's not at if all. If it were like, anyone but, but Miyazaki doing the, the adaptation of the story for the screenplay, I, I might be willing to overlook a lot of it and, and think that I'm making connections where they don't exist. But I think all this stuff with the Latin Quarter, that's so obviously, like, But the symbolic. fact that that kid says very specifically yeah. about how, if it's demolished, how will they have anything that right. they can tie to their past, where right. they came from, then literally the Latin Quarter is sanitized. They go through it and they make it look nice. They clean it up. They burn a lot of records. Yeah. Uh, they get rid of a lot of things in the newspaper club. They tear that, down uh, that poor philosophy kid's hut. Right. Which is like a hackneyed hut. There's built all in the hallway. this beautification. So they get to keep the club room. They get to keep the I club mean, the clubhouse room, because of what they did. It's not the same. No, it's not the same clubhouse. So they have let go a lot of the past, but they've held on to part of it. Right. Like the part that they want to hold on to, they've kept. 
And there are other parts that were painful to let go of, but they still let them go and because it was for the future. They wanted to be able to, for the club room to continue to exist, they had to burn part of the past. Right. That's heavy stuff. Something that Japan, something really every every culture that has anything to be ashamed of, which is I think pretty much Most every of them, culture, all of them, yeah. right, really should take into consideration and should really understand what, what is at stake. You don't want to get rid of the entire past, but you can't move forward if you keep all of it. Right. So it would appear. And it's it's done with such a deft hand because, again, it is Miyazaki, both Miyazakis, I guess, but I mean Hayao Miyazaki, the, the screenplay. And one of the reasons why I really want to read the original story is because yeah. I got a sneaking suspicion that's not what not this story this is there. about. I think that it's, it's going to be pretty clear where the changes have been made to bring this theme out. Oh, that's true, because you're like Miyazaki's adaptation of Howl's Moving Castle. <laughs> like, right, well, I mean, it's very different. Howl's yeah, Moving Castle is sure. much different, sure. where he's like thrown in a bunch of war themes that are um, aren't in the book. So, uh, Thoughtbird. Also, Miyazaki's next movie is called As the Wind Rises, and it's about the between the two World War yeah, period. yikes. It's going to be some heavy stuff. It's about, well, again... Also, the protagonist has manga disease. All I've seen By which I mean is, the consumption. Well, not the protagonist. We only the, see the trailer. The, the love interest. Love interest. Protagonist likes airplanes and a specific and is, Italian airline designer. Or was designer. a real guy. I oh, think really? It's, yeah. I, I think that this is the real guy who designed the Zero. Okay. Designed the Zero. Yeah. Oh, man. This <laughs> is so freaking weird. This is like... Oh, the... <laughs> So we're going to go and talk to one of the chief engineers or aeronautics engineers on, on in the Luftwaffe, and it's going to be an uplifting story about it's a love story. how this is, this is cool, and I'm totally behind it 100%, really, or at least what I've seen on the basis of the trailer. This is good stuff. This is what national cinema should do, because otherwise you... What should it do? What should national it cinema should, do? It should take history and place it under... A magnifying glass. From what I saw, I don't think this is going to be propaganda. And Miyazaki knows. He knows very well that this film is going to get international distribution. Mm. He knows what the zero aircraft means to everyone inside and outside of Japan. I mean, this is this is nuts. You're going to tell an uplifting story about the guy who creates the airplanes that were then used in kamikaze attacks? Okay. I mean, yeah, they're like the most famous aircraft to come out of japan yeah yeah it was also a good plane yeah that's what right because there's dad, a reason there's a reason why no my dad's really into like world war ii yeah. planes and so if he was talking about planes he's gonna mention the zero and all that stuff right well the the germans and the because i'm not really like a, a war nerd i'm not a combat stuff otaku the way that your dad is but you know people get really into this and they will tell you the germans and the japanese at the outset of the second world war their everything was so much better than anything that the Allies had. Their aircraft, their tanks. Yeah, the, the Zero was was way better than what uh, the British could field at the same time. The difference is, over the course of the war, the Allies learned from their mistakes, and the Axis did not. Oh. So that's a story for another time. But yeah. Oh, I should mention, as kind of a closing point, I guess, the music in Up on Poppy Hill is wonderful. There's a lot of really nostalgic tracks from that time period. The point where I don't even know those songs, but I feel nostalgic listening to them, where I'm like, oh, Nazcashine, for a time I never <laughs> lived in. That's always very appealing to me, to feel nostalgia for a time I never lived in, in a country I've never been. I mean, I've been in Japan, but not in 1964. We went to the changes in Japan between the 50s and 60s and 70s. I mean, you know, the 80s are so drastic. And so and in the 90s. I know. So drastic and so 
ridiculous that we went to the Japanese ramen museum, which uh, was it in Yokohama? Outside of Tokyo. Well outside mm, of Tokyo. Certainly outside of Tokyo. I don't... It may have been. Don't, I don't know. I don't but know. the upstairs part of the museum... Very easily, the upstairs part of the museum is like a standard kind of museum, like here's how noodles are made or whatever. But then the basement of the museum is a recreation of Japan in the 1960s, right. where there are old movie posters, really shitty storefronts, and crappy Chinese plastic toys, like little leaping plastic frogs and tiny crappy water and, guns. And Showa-era, I want to say caricatures, but that's not quite right. There are actors who are oh, playing, those playing kinds of, the roles of Showa-era stereotypes. Yeah, there's I even a thief. There's like including a thief, a thief that yeah. has his... Nap, like a, a handkerchief tied below his nose right. as per stereotypes. Yeah. Who children can yell, oh, did you see the thief? There's the thief. There he is. And right. A policeman runs around and catches him. So you get the feeling the building of that place is so ridiculous. I mean, it's a different Japan that doesn't exist anymore. Well, because it's all been yes. rebuilt. Also, a lot of their structures are just not really built to last multiple decades anyway, with the lack of indoor heating and multiple earthquakes. And dare I say, it's a Japan that never existed because it's been recreated from the minds of children who grew up in that era. Right. And that, when it's good, is what 20th Century Boys is about. Right. Then, after it stops being about that, it turns to a river of shit. But <laughs> such is life. So, yes, we did. We were able to see this up close. And it is a very, I, I don't think we really have anything in this country to compare that to. I think we may have at one point where... Oh, like a Wild West town or something? Well, no, it's not Wild West because... Because you, that's in, within you your area. You, you wouldn't... see the, air, the aerials for yeah, TV and yeah, TV never... was just getting... No, I was You, you wouldn't of... go to like 1950s town. Right. Well, but that's what it is. It's sort of this leave it to beaver, what we would consider leave it to beaver. Right. But... Did we ever feel nostalgia for that period or even people growing up in it? As I think people do, but tell, like the houses and things I like that. I don't know. I feel like the American narrative has been that that was a repressive time period that we, we have exercised from our system in the 1960s. Sure. And that it was all fake. And I don't think that the Japanese look back on it on the Showa era as the same thing. I mean, clearly there are very, very different time periods and different cultures and so on and right. so forth. Well, I'm seeing some of the physical structures, like houses that people built during the 50s, like still are around in America. Or even like when we went to, when I drove through Iowa, we went to Ryan's father's drugstore. Sure. It was very... It had existed for a long time, and the same old people would sit in the, the drugstore had kind of diner-like seating in the back, but it was on Main Street, USA, literally a main street in a town with old shops that predate malls that had been in continuous existence from the 50s or from the after World War II. And this was the same drugstore it had always been. Mm. Even in the rest of America, those kinds of things slowly go out of business as malls come in. And you get the vestiges of leftover Main Street America, which is something you might hear conservative media throw around. But there were at one time Main Streets with these shops and you park in front of them and you go inside. But those things don't die as quickly as rebuilding in Japan because the renovation is much more continuous and much more drastic. Right. That you might get makeovers in Main Street America. But maybe someone lives things there. are not built to last in Japan anyway. That's what I'm saying. Because they don't even have insulation. Well, they, yes, that's true. Well, Unless new, you're in new, new buildings do. Yeah. Main Street America doesn't have to worry about earthquakes and right. you know typhoons and Godzilla and <laughs> everything else under the sun. It's true. So we can afford to be a little more permanent. Permanent. Yeah. Yeah. 
So no, you wouldn't go to Recreation 50s, leave it to Beaver House. But this is, again, this is, we are tiptoeing around, or not tiptoeing, but what we in America have kept from that time period and what we, we have jettisoned, both in actuality and sort of mythologically. I wonder what the Japanese would say, consuming our media, about what, what we have downplayed. I wonder what they think the realities that we turn a blind eye to are. I don't think it's a question we can answer. It's, it's the, the, the fish in the water, right? They don't know they're in it. <laughs> and we, we are of this culture, and so it's very difficult to have any kind of an objective or at least outsider perspective and analysis. It's one of the things that kind of sucks about being human. <laughs> you can't tell you're in the water? Yeah. Because you ask a fish, what's water? No, it's the joke that this one did a film based on this graduation speech that David Foster Wallace gave. Yes, that's right. Right, where an old fish swims by these two young fish, and he asks no, the two not, younger it's fish. It's not a fish, right? What? The, not an old fish. I don't know. It's someone on the, the riverbank or something. Oh, wouldn't make sense for one fish to well, ask another No, it's supposed to be an old... Well, the way David Foster Wallace apparently says it mm. in his speech is, an old fish swims by two younger... And they happen to meet an older fish swimming the other way, who nods at them and says, Morning, boys. How's the water? And the two young fish swim on for a bit, and then eventually one of them looks over at the other and goes, What the hell is water? <laughs> this is a standard requirement of U.S. commencement speeches, the deployment of didactic little parabolish stories. Maybe. But you're saying it's a guy on a riverbank. Well. Who's like, how's the water? And the fish are like, what the fuck is right. water? So in Wallace's take, eventually you get old enough, you realize you're in water. Hopefully. Well, I hope, I hope he's right. Uh, so I guess what, in conclusion, from, from our, from the ninja consultant point of view, it's from up on Poppy Hill, two thumbs up. Well, two thumbs up, and it's... Uh, and wolf children kind of well, thumbs down I say, yeah, sure, thumbs down. I, I really didn't like it. I think, I, f- I feel like it's the kind of film where, like, I'm going to watch all of Hosoda's films pretty much, so I'm going to watch also that one. Right, well, And there so aren't that many. I. It's not, I'm not, you're not asking that much, but, like, let's watch all of Memorial Hosoda's films, and there are only, like, three of them. Like and we've already seen them. Right. It's not like when I talk to my, uh, the undergrads who I work with and I'm like, what do you mean you haven't seen all of the Ghibli films, including pre-Ghibli films? <laughs> like, they're only like 19. Like, they haven't had time to watch 18 different movies yet or whatever. Or like to find all 20 films that I'm talking about and watch them all. They got a lot on their plate. A lot of things going on. Yeah. I assume little, I hadn't watched all of the Ghibli films when I was that age either. But I did after I graduated. I went through the whole catalog. Takes a little while. But we're only talking about three movies here. It's not like... When Hal was like, I'm watching every Kurosawa film. <laughs> and there are a lot. And yeah, you have to track down it's the It's not like watching disc. every Takashi Miike film oh where he's like done literally hundreds now. Oh, no. Every film Robert Corman worked on. Corman? Roger, Roger Corman? Roger Corman. The guy who made the all these people. Yeah. yeah. That'd be a march. That would be a... <laughs> <laughs> That'd be tough. Force march. <laughs> that would be a shitty life. <laughs> that's why I can't be an academic. Because you'd have to... I can't subject myself to that. <laughs> More than once, even. Not probably. sure how that even follows. What? How does that follow? Because if you're going to say right about Roger Corman, yeah, or right about B movies, you're going to have to watch everything, <sighs> and maybe even more than once. <sighs> so I'm saying that's why I couldn't be an academic. Okay. And that's why, like, we didn't watch these films again. I kind of wish we had, but man, it's a I'm big not going to. I don't want to watch Wolf Trailer another time. I, didn't I saw like, it once. Yeah. That's fine. We could have done it. We could have seen it at Oticon. Then the details, they get fuzzy. It's true. But, you know, I interviewed this one guy who'd written a, 
a really important book about Oliver Stone, but he'd written his book about Oliver Stone in like the 70s or 80s. He was a pretty old man. And the way he had to watch the films again to write his book was on film. He had to go somewhere where they would show him a print and he had to write with a pen light, take right. notes in the yep. dark. That's a pain in the ass that we will never have to experience again. <laughs> I know, but I think we're kicking it old school by not rewatching them. <laughs> you were kicking it old school, but does that really lead to better analysis? I think the answer is no. <laughs> so, sure. Entertaining, interesting film, but but possibly important and, and certainly, I think, worth more attention than it has been paid up yeah. to this point. All right. So, I don't know. This may not be our last episode ever. Whoa, I hope not. <laughs> you just want to put like one a year, something like that? Well, whatever. Put one out whenever we have to. Like, whenever... It would be too painful not to put one out. Okay. We're still watching anime. It's true. We still have interesting things to say. It's yeah. Just, can't really have any kind of reliable schedule so long as uh, Aaron is in grad school, because God knows I'm not going to edit these things. <laughs> I know, right? We tried that in the past. I didn't forget. Oh my God, we watched the first part of that Ghost in the Shell OVA, Arise. Yeah. It was great. Yeah. Keep watching that. Yeah, yeah. Thumbs up to that. We'll eventually do like, we'll probably do a Flowers of Evil show eventually, because we're reading that manga like sure. nobody's business. But that's something that I think it's very obvious. Uh, <laughs> I think it's really, it would be very tough to miss what's going on there. That's true. One might say it's in the text. impossible. Right. So oh, saying why it's great could be a podcast. What, what? Being puppy cat. Yeah. All right, that's it. Okay, the end. Thank you.